Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Wendy Smith, the co-author of Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. Wendy is the Dana J. Johnson Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Women's Leadership Initiative at the University of Delaware. She earned her PhD in Organizational Behavior at Harvard Business School, where she began her intensive research on strategic paradoxes, how leaders in senior teams effectively respond to contradictory yet interdependent demands. In the conversation, Wendy and I discuss paradoxes, both and thinking, how to navigate paradoxes, wisdom in daily life, and so much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and book. I find the topic of paradoxes and both and thinking extremely important in the search for wisdom, so I'm grateful that Wendy made time to come on the show. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Wendy Smith. Wendy Smith, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. And today we're going to be talking about your book, Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. As I just mentioned before we hit record, big fan of both end type of thinking and paradox. So uh, a lot of respect for your work in the world. I'm happy to connect and, and discuss with you. But before we get into the book, could you share a little bit about maybe how you initially came to have an interest in, in this work? The, the ideas of the book came both from my own life and from the research that I was doing as an early doctoral student. So in my own life, I was confronted by all kinds of decisions where I would just feel stuck, particularly around career decisions. I was super jealous of all of my colleagues and friends that wanted to go to med school because it was a very clear path with a very directive um, approach. And I felt like I was all over the place in what I wanted to do with my life. I, I even uh, tinkered in possibly going to med school for that kind of certainty. Um, and uh, in feeling that sense of decision-making, that tug of war of possibilities, I also felt kind of stuck in them. And that, uh, you know, is one impetus for wanting to study how people think about decision making, how they think about the kinds of challenges that they face and what it would look like to turn that into opportunities. At the same time, when I finally decided that I was going to go to grad school and be an academic, I was studying how uh, organizations innovated and in particular how they navigated this question about managing for the future while simultaneously feeling the uh, tug or the, the possibilities of how they were current or, or the pressures to continue to do what they were doing in their current world. 
And it was that work that introduced me to this idea of paradox that introduced me to my co-author and colleague from the last 20, 25 years, Marianne Lewis, and her work on paradox, which helped to frame the question of how leaders innovated, but also helped to reflect back on my own career decisions. So all of that came together under this idea of um, how do we move from getting stuck in our decisions uh, why is either or thinking limited and how do we get to a better place? I love it. And I appreciate you sharing some background and interest. As you say there, that word stuck. It's interesting. Do you see that as a sign that we're we're maybe dealing with a paradox? Because some of these situations, there could be maybe an emotion that we put to it. But it's a common thing of, of working with people and talking with people, navigating life is a feeling of stuck. Yeah. What we say, or what we would argue is that we experience, whether you want to call it tensions or tug of wars or competing demands all the time in some of the most basic decisions that we have to make, like what should I eat for breakfast to some of the most complex experiences that we're navigating in our personal lives or in leadership of organizations or even in the grand challenges that we face in our world around climate or around racial justice or around, you know, political polarization. They all raise these kinds of tug of war competing demands. And um, what we would argue is that it's not if we face these kinds of tensions, uh, because we do all the time, it's how and how can we turn them from uh, these detrimental experiences in which they lead us down these vicious cycles and leave us in this limited space, this, this stuck space, this sense of defensive space? How can we shift them from obstacles into opportunities that lead us into a more creative, generative, thriving space? And, and that's the core of what we're exploring. And we generally start with maybe defining terms, and I, I thought that could be useful here. How do you define paradox and then also maybe what you mean by tension? It's such a good question because I think the word paradox itself can be either engaging for people or off-putting for people. Some people are like, paradox, bring it on. And others are like, you know, paradox, let's leave that in the philosopher's corner. Um the way that we define it is that we talk about tensions as an overarching term for the kinds of emotional tug of wars, competing demands, situations in which there is a choice to be made or in which we feel like there's opposing possibilities that come into our our lives. And again, that could be everything from how do I navigate my health and well-being? How do I partner with a partner? How do I parent? All kinds of tensions that arise there? How do I think about my career? To how do I work in a team? How do I lead an organization? Like all kinds of places in which there come upon us different possibilities that are often in conflict or feel like they are opposing one another. And that's the overarching term. And what we would argue is that those competing demands, tensions show up as a dilemma, where a dilemma is a, an experience that's begging us for an answer. Do I spend tonight spending more time finishing the work that I have to do or do I make it home for family dinner? Do I make a choice at this moment to do something that's healthy, get it, go out for a walk, get to sleep earlier, exercise, or do I continue to do the thing that I, you know, that I want to do, like finish the uh, 
finish uh, binge watching whatever episodes I am on Netflix, you know, or, you know, do I in my own life, do I in my career focus on being an academic who studies ideas or what we academics call a practitioner or a real person out there who implements them? Like They sort of beg us for a choice of what we're, what we need to do. We need to make a decision. And what we would argue is that paradoxes underlie all of those dilemmas, that if we sort of pull back the curtain on those decisions, what we'll see underneath them are paradoxes. So it might be worthy to spend just a minute on what we mean by that. What we mean by paradox is these contradict, these interdependent, persistent contradictions. So these do, and we often use the, the image of the yin-yang to demonstrate it, right? These two options that are in direct conflict with each other, love and hate, stability and change, self and other, the, the white sliver and the black sliver that are directly opposing and contradictory, but they are also interdependent in that they define each other, they enable each other, they reinforce one another, the boundaries of one lead to the boundaries of the other, the yin-yang, the totality requires both the black and the white, and they are defining of one another, and they don't go away, we're never um, solving them per se, we're always grappling with these paradoxes. So Underlying the decision of in this moment, do I watch the next episode of Netflix or go to bed is this underlying ongoing tension that we have about being spontaneous and in the moment and having fun and being disciplined and 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 sort of and, and that disciplined spontaneity tension shows up in our lives in all kinds of different ways, but it's something that we're always grappling with. And what we know is that too much spontaneity leaves us being so um, extreme on some level that we actually can't be productive in life, but too much discipline, you know, it's almost to extent that like we create these disciplines in our lives, but so much discipline leaves us not enjoying the life that we're creating. And we need this, it, this ongoing balancing, this ongoing interdependence of discipline and spontaneity, right? That, it, that we want this ongoing balance. And we know that, a, a bit of discipline, we create the structures and routines in our lives, allows us the space and the opportunity to be more spontaneous. So, so they're, they're intertwined with one another. And those are what hide behind these dilemmas. And what we would argue is that if we, if we pause to notice those paradoxes, those interdependent relationships, we get to a better, more creative, more thriving, more sustainable set of solutions to our dilemmas. Beautiful. I have a big curiosity question, I guess, if if you will. Both Anne thinking this navigating a paradox, not a new idea as you're as you're well aware. You bring in the the yin and yang symbol. It's really timeless wisdom. I think of uh, things that have come up previously on the show. People like. Heraclitus and this conflict of opposites. You have the middle way, which is really a central thing in, in Buddhism. And I went through a consulting course a few years ago, and it was, it was lovely. Brought in basically this, this type of work of how we navigate a particular paradox. And it's it was almost like it's new information. You know, why is there... 
out of all of the books, you know, maybe probably 500 books a year on, on leadership and different things that come out. Why is it not as common as maybe it should be is I guess my question. (laughs) There's so much to say to that point. So uh, thank you for raising that and putting that out there, Josh. I think that um, I, I, I'm, I like to joke that, uh, the one question to ask any author is what's the chapter that got nixed from your book that got sort of left on the chopping block floor because mm. the chapter in our book that we that we sort of condensed uh, in some uh, some call out boxes was about the history of paradox. We are indeed uh, building on the shoulders of giants, standing on the shoulders of giants. What's really intriguing to me and to us, myself and and Marianne, my co-author, is that these ideas have been around for 2,500 years. Like you said, it's it's Buddhist philosophy, Lao Tzu and Confucius. It's it's Heraclitus and Greek philosophy who were writing in the 500 BC era. You know, it's even, and and my colleagues um, remind me that it's not just East and West, like Southern and African philosophy and Ubuntu and the idea of I am because who you are and the interdependent mm-hmm. relationship between the self and the other. And what's intriguing to us about that is that in a world in 500 BC that didn't have the internet and didn't have mm-hmm. ideas flying around the globe in a split second, those ideas really emerged in parallel. Uh, and Maybe through the trade routes, there was some conversation between them, but but it seems as if those parallel ideas seem to be pointing to a deeper truth and a deeper reality. And so, so I think that that's right. We're 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 building on ideas that are twenty five hundred years old, and what we had delineated in this chapter was the extent to which those ideas really uh, uh, diverged, particularly Eastern and Western, for centuries. And part of that was that that Lao Tzu won the day in the East with yin-yang and living into this paradoxical relationship. And Heraclitus lost the day. He was seen as this sort of strange philosopher hiding out in a cave. And what won the day in Western philosophy was a more rational linear thinking, which led to the scientific method, which led to so much of our scientific innovation and and, um, discovery. So, and, and the important part is how what we've seen in the last... 100, 150 years has been a reconvergence where uh, Western science is coming back to Eastern or Southern or, you know, back to these ideas of um, of paradox, these irrational, seemingly irrational, seemingly absurd interdependent relationships between opposites. And so we've seen it emerge in physics and the ideas of quantum physics where Faraday that led to Einstein that led like really shifted from linear Newtonian physics to quantum physics, where at at its core, and I do not prepare, you know, propose to understand this in the least, (laughs) but at its core, you know, something is both there and not there. It's both a wave and a particle. There's this, you know, and and, um, a good book for this is Freehoff Capra's The Tao of Physics. Like it's underneath that, that idea of physics. You know, we see it in the world of understanding the inner self and psychoanalysis with Jungian philosophy and the shadow and the self and, you know, and 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 um, Adler and Viktor Frankl, who are all exploring these notions of the. So in those worlds, we've seen this notion of paradox reemerge. I like to say that the world of sociology or, or my world, which is organizational theory and how do organizations and leaders and teams inter what are the interactions like we're coming late to the paradox party 
Um, and, you know, I, and it's partially, I think, it's certainly when we started writing about these ideas 20 years ago, my colleagues uh, would sort of think of this notion of paradox as something that belonged in a yoga studio, but not in a rational argument in my academic journals around organization science. There was still this assumption of a very linear, rational approach. And I think we are, and we've certainly, uh, you know, Marianne and I are building on work. There's a great book by uh, Kenwin Smith and David David Berg, The Paradoxes of Group Life, They're, you know, mm-hmm. that, that have started to talk about this. They started talking about this in the 80s. What I think we're seeing is that in many ways, these paradoxical relationships are coming up increasingly in leadership books. So if you read, for example, Brene Brown, she would argue, Brene Brown, daring greatly, she would argue that great leaders uh, build courage and assertiveness by being vulnerable. Or Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, that it's the givers that get the most, that there's this relationship with this sort of uh, ironic relationship. Or, you know, another favorite of ours, uh, Amy Edmondson in her books, one of them being teaming on psychological safety, which is all about what does it take to honor mistakes in service of performance? What does it take to to honor our errors in order to learn and then to perform? So we see these paradoxical relationships starting to emerge. And the reason we wrote this book was in part because we are increasingly seeing the research that points to these paradoxical relationships and that unpacks not just if there's a paradoxical relationship, but how do we think about it? And we wanted to honor that community of scholars that we are among and and bring out and really bring to light that research because more and more people are doing this work. I greatly appreciate you sharing that the background and so many different resources. It seems like once your your awareness has been raised of it, as you can say, you can see it everywhere, and it does show up um, in in many different different resources. I think I heard first heard the idea. I've been a longtime subscriber to Richard Rohr's Daily Meditations, mm-hmm. and he's talked about it and and had a basically year on it where it's like, yes. And, um, and something he says is how difficult it is to see. It's almost like we can see one particular path at a time. It's difficult to hold the whole picture. How do we maybe broaden our perspective or cultivate that ability to see both ends? One of the greatest compliments we get when people have read this book is when they say to us, I now see paradox everywhere, just as you said. Uh, It was something that I had said to my advisors when I was first studying these ideas. And just yesterday, I gave a talk to about 250 people in a corporation and their CEO said to me, oh, gosh, I now see paradox everywhere. Right. And (laughs) once you see, sometimes it's hard to unsee. And you're right. There's reasons why it's hard for us to see paradox to begin with. And I I think there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, One of the reasons is that we have this kind of evolutionary heritage that's brought down to us in which we, um, that uncertainty equates with fear. What we don't know in front of us leads to fear. And so there's this um, effort, if you will, this pressure to make clear decisions and not leave things open and uncertain and Certainly what we're looking for is something more rational and more clear for ourselves. So I think that's one reason. 
you know, I think another reason is that culturally, you know, we are um, trained to that decisiveness is certain is what we are expected, you know, from a very young age. Okay, which popsicle do you want, red or green? Like, you know, it's it's one or the other. To to the fact that I I teach in a business school and and am so guilty of, and certainly among my colleagues, we train people to start with a case study where there's alternative options. Which one should the peer, which one should we choose? And then let's go back and analyze and develop better and better frameworks for making those choices, those rational choices. And in fact, in our era of big data, we have more information to try and make better decisions. But, th- but that's certainly, you know, in search of that ultimate truth. And I think that's the heritage, at least in the West, that comes down to us from this kind of linear Aristotelian scientific method where we're searching for a truth and uh, we just need stronger, better tools to be and, and measurements to be able to get to that truth as opposed to we're honoring multiple different sides of a prism that bring different uh, lenses together in search of an overall truth. So I think that's another piece, you know, and, and I guess a, a third piece that I would say, and I don't know if I'm on three or four, I've, I've lost, <laughs> but one other piece that I think is hard is that it's just, it's hard to think this way. It, it feels absurd. It feels irrational. And we have a colleague in a, uh, a, in a compendium that was written back in the 1980s, our colleague, Bill Starbuck, had this quote where he said, you know, maybe there's paradoxes everywhere and it's just hard for us to see them. It's like we are monkeys hanging from the rafters of Wall Street trying to figure out their laws, the laws of Wall Street. And it, it may be that part of it is just that it's it's complicated. To, you know, Marianne and I will often say that the more we get into paradox, the more slippery and confusing the ideas, you know, we feel like we get it and then the ideas feel slippery and confusing. And, and you know, um, almost uh, we get a little defensive trying to get back to a place where we understand and feel certainty because it does feel a bit complex of an idea sometimes. So I think there's a variety of reasons we hold tightly to the certainty of the either or and the linear thinking. Yeah, I have a question about that. You've brought up fear, uncertainty. Uncertainties come up many times on on the podcast. It's really fascinating and I, I love in the book that you brought in uh, Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Not Taken. <laughs> and, you know, you see yourself there. We've all been there. There's some sort of fork in the road. You mentioned this decision of medical school or this or that. There's a fork in the road. There are decisions. And that can bring out a certain level of anxiety itself right there. That's not necessarily you know, clear sailing. And then you bring in the idea that there's almost a road not there. There's a middle way. There's a both and to a certain extent. You know, how do we find the courage to to navigate that? Because that initial middle way, if you will, on a decision is just filled with uncertainty. I'm so glad you mentioned the Robert Frost piece. I love that piece. You are probably the first person that I've spoken to that has raised that up from the book because I think that there's this aha in the road not taken that you're taking, you know, that that you're going down the certain and 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 um, comfortable path, and what happens if you take the alternative path? And that's been an aha for people. And we're saying, wait, 
why are you stuck in the choice between just these two paths? That unto itself is constraining. You know, I often say to my students, uh, if somebody gives you a choice between A or B, oftentimes the right answer is C. Like it doesn't have to be A or B. Um, and, and I think uh, an important piece that we've stum- we stumbled upon to and we stumbled onto in part in the very first research project that I did was was that there's different ways of thinking about both anding. and and um, and and so we call it the mule and the tightrope walker and I think it's worth it to just spend a minute on these different patterns because um, because when we think about what is possible with a both and solution, bringing together these opposites, noticing these paradoxes. What in the very first research project that I did, I was, I think I mentioned, I was studying IBM and how they were navigating the competing demands between today and tomorrow, their existing product and innovation, stability and change. And I was expecting that I would find a lot of win-win possibilities, the ideal integration, the ideal place where these two possibilities came together uh, to form a better option. And so we we frame that possibility as the mule because the mule is this like classic hybrid. We have been breeding mules for centuries, longer than we've known about paradox, because they are the combination of the donkey and the horse. So they are smarter than the donkey, fat, you know, stronger than the horse. You bring them together, you've got the mule and you've got this ideal hybrid win-win creative integration. And that happens sometimes. There's an ideal that there's a better option in which both sides. And by the way, sometimes when I hear the word the middle way in, in some research that my colleagues, Angela Leung and Ella Marone Spector did, what they found was sometimes the middle way is not the ideal win. It's kind of a compromise on both sides. So it's a little bit like each of us have to give in. But this win-win integration is that actually both of us get what we want. There's a better option out there. And so I expected to go into IBM and see lots of win-wins where their existing product helped their innovation and there was these brilliant possibilities out there. And and again, that happens sometimes. And when those happen, they're great. Uh, but not that often. And so what we found was actually a second pattern in this both and, and we call it the tightrope walker. And, and it's more of what I saw at IBM, which is that navigating both and, meaning that they wanted to accommodate in their world, the existing world and the innovation involved making decisions. So they're not stuck. It's not like both and leaves you everything open and you don't move forward but they're making decisions in which they are sometimes emphasizing one side, sometimes emphasizing the other in these micro shifting. So for IBM, that would look like sometimes they would add more engineers to advance their innovation. And sometimes they would pull back the engineers to address a customer problem at the moment, or sometimes, and, but they were micro shifting. And so we use the metaphor of the tightrope walker because the tightrope walker is in fact going forward, looking to an endpoint, going straight, they're never fully balanced, but they're always balancing. But importantly, they're not going so far to one side that they fall over. They're constantly just making these micro shifts. And, and just to ground this idea for one more second, I, I think of it uh, you know, in terms of work life. So oftentimes when I do workshops for companies and I say, tell me the tensions that you're experiencing in the tug of wars, Work life is a big one. It got even bigger during the pandemic where those boundaries were so blurred. And, 
you know, when I, and I write about this, when I first had my kids, I now have, I have a 16 year old twins and I have a, a 10 year old. And when I first had my twins, I thought like, oh my God, like, I feel like I'm pulled in all these different directions. There has to be a better way to do this. You know, I study both and what's the more creative solution. And like the win-win in that case, which some people choose is I'm going to open up a daycare down the street because work becomes life and I bring my kids to work and I don't have to bring my work home and da 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 But like, that's not what I was going to do. It's not where I was going. And, and for most people, work-life is this ongoing balancing in service of over time being able to accommodate both. Because if we go too far to work, you know, we burn out if we if we completely ignore the rest of our lives. And if we go so far to the rest of our lives that we ignore our work, well, well, then we're not being productive. And eventually we, you know, might not have any work to do going forward. So so it is this kind of tightrope walking. I love that visual. And I, I've got to bring in a quote from from Seneca. Many listeners of the show are, are fans of of Seneca from a, another podcast that I do. But he says in a letter to Lucilius that the wise person Although they're walking a single road, they're not taking the same steps. And and I, I get that same thing that although there is that single road, it's there is flexibility. There is, you know, a, a, a bit of that that movement. And a different experience that they're each having and different eyes through which they're each looking. There's a lot of dynamism, even what seems yeah. so stable. I'm I'm curious around questions of maybe cultivating different perspectives. You know, you brought up the donkey and it also brought up something Heraclitus said of, of all these different examples. Like, you know, we value gold, the donkey values trash, the way up is the way down, whatever I say, the, you could also say the opposite. So it's maybe not always applying to these very difficult and messy organizational complex things, but just how we're seeing the the everyday actions of, of life. Yeah, I, I think that the more that we can live into that reality and honor that, the more that we are open to new possibilities. You know, oftentimes they say that uh, third, third uh, culture kids have this special possibility. So third culture kids are the kind of kids that are born of parents from one culture, but living in another. So American parents living in China, Chinese parents living in America, split between different cultures where the normative culture around them is not the same as what they have in their home or something like that. And research done on third culture kids would say that it's actually bifurcated. Some people end up feeling so um, pulled in opposite directions that it's that it's stifling but for many of these kids, seeing different perspectives, what I do at home is actually not the same thing that I do that is done sort of normatively or even bringing kids on a sabbatical or, you know, bring, being, opens up possibilities that the world is not so narrow and um, easily uh, containable within one set of approaches introduces this possibility of that invites us when we are engaging in the world to pause and say, is there another way? Am I, is there another possibility? Is there another option? And um, I think that's important. You know, it, so 
I, I think it translates into one of the great challenges that we face today, which is just how polarized we are politically, because we've lost the ability to listen and engage with one another across political across the political spectrum, and that instead we are uh, just responding to stereotypes and dehumanizing one another. And one thing that Marianne and I have written about recently is that oftentimes in the streets, you know, at, at the political level, we're shouting at one another across platitudes, but in the streets, when it comes down to it, many of the issues that we face, there is a good majority that actually has, if not overlapping, like that there are places in which there are similarities in our perspectives on some of these real lightning rod issues, but we aren't in communication with one another to even hear them. And I think that in that space too, there's huge value of us to pause and think, you know, to, to what would somebody else think? I don't have to agree with them, but can I listen and be open and see where there might be some overlap? I think that we would get so much farther as a, country, as a nation, as a world, on dealing with some of our biggest issues. I couldn't agree more. And it's it's heartbreaking to to see. And it's one of the reasons I have so much appreciation for, for your work in, in the world and people that are like yourself that are focused on on this area of uh, of paradox and both and thinking. And I'm someone, as I said, I'm I'm a both and thinking type of nerd and paradox and find this stuff really interesting and have for the last decade or so. And then just recently, maybe six months ago, was really surprised by something I heard, for example. And I think it just gives an example of how difficult sometimes this is is to see. And the example was about equality, you know, and how you, you can't have equality without progress. And it, it gave the example of, uh, if I can remember correctly, you know, maybe a dozen people living in a cave and then one person decides to, mm. you know, build a shelter or something like that. Progress, but that progress gave birth to inequality. Oh, fabulous. You know, yeah. so it's, it's, it's difficult to see that the one thing gives birth to something else. And, you know, in that situation, you know, I mean, I've felt right to just seeing the one side, not necessarily seeing seeing both. Oh, I love that. And, you know, you're bringing me right back to my college philosophy class where I believe it was Robert Putnam, but your listeners would probably know much better who talked about this idea of what would happen if we uh, redistributed wealth so that there is absolute equality, eventually you would see people engaging with it in different ways and therefore inequality would have to get back to equality. I, I think that an important idea here is uh, separating out or re recognizing that relationship and how powerful it is. I've always felt really, I always struggled by that and recognizing what our role is in navigating that space uh, so that we don't ignore it. We still have a commitment to reinforce equality, even as we have a commitment to enable progress. And so I think that, that you know, if I were to go back and reread that work that I was engaging with in college, it would be, what? Well, how can I bring a lens of paradox to understand that it's not total redistribution, but it is thinking about the interdependencies of both individual action and systemic, you know, systemic 
boundaries. It's the interdependencies of, you know, understanding how we as individuals have worked to advance in the world, even as the world is conspiring to sometimes lead mm -hmm. to outcomes that we're not interested in. And so, you know, I, th I think there is that that is an absolutely complex space that invites us to be more thoughtful about where do we situate ourselves and our practices and policies and culture amid those kinds of challenges. Yes. The um, to bring in another maybe practical example, something I was thinking about as reading the book. And you talk about this overcorrection. It's like maybe we see one side and our awareness is, is raised of that opposite. And we have a tendency to overcorrect an example I've always thought of is uh, Angela Duckworth's book grit. She talks about in there of maybe a parent an educator or leader needs to be extremely demanding and extremely supportive. Yeah. And if someone was to, come up to to you as a leader or a parent and say hey it you know it appears that you know you're a little too demanding maybe try to incorporate some more supportive type of behavior is we have a tendency to really go to the other side and basically drop the the demanding if you will and completely live in the supportive absolutely the the question then i think it raises is how do we navigate demanding to enable supportive and supportive to, you know, in, in service of, I don't know if it's supportive in service of demanding, but how do we enable the boundaries to enable the, and the support to enable that kind of, you know, creative behavior? Um, I saw, we saw this in our own parenting. I was saying I have twins and, you know, sleep navigate, navigating sleep is like one of the first things that you grapple with as you're trying to help your kids in the world. And, in the big picture, you're trying to help them to be healthy, uh, productive kids. And we went straight from one extreme. You know, there's so many very extreme perspectives. Let them cry it out versus coddle them, you know. And we went straight from one extreme to the other in trying to navigate this. And this was sort of on steroids for us, exponentially challenging because we, our first kids are twins. And when they're on different sleep schedules, everybody was chaotic. And you know, and I think that we had to land somewhere in between so that it wasn't extreme discipline, close the door, let them cry it out, you know, because that was painful for all of us. And but it wasn't, you know, extreme, like child led, let them do whatever they want, because that was chaotic for all of us, too. And nobody mm -hmm. was sleeping. So I, I think that's right. I think you're constant and, and you're tweaking, you're trying to find the right ways in which you have the discipline that enables that kind of you know, support and that support that enables the discipline, but you're constantly also tweaking. It's, it's an, this is what makes paradox hard is that it's like, once you've found the momentary solution, know that the next moment it's going to blow up and you need to refine it again. You're constantly finding that. So, and that goes right back to Heraclitus's famous line, no person steps in the same river twice, right? We're, we're looking for some kind of stable approach, knowing that it's always changing. <laughs> In your work with with organizations, how do you protect against that that overcorrection or some sort of pendulum of where it's going back and forth? I'm a big fan of um, work by Kathy Eisenhart and her colleagues on uh, and uh, on um, simple rules. Right? What 
and and I think that the so so I think that um, a key to this, and a lot of people have talked about the value in organizations about having either an overarching vision. We talk about it as a higher purpose. Uh, our colleagues at Polarity Partnerships, Barry Johnson, they talk about it as a GPS, the Global Purpose Statement, because it does it it, it grounds us and guides us. Uh, and I think that an important component to navigating paradox is to continue to sort of connect to why are we doing this? What's the long term? Where are we trying to get to? Because it's within those higher purpose statements that we are motivated, but that we also bring together these opposing ideas that oftentimes we need both, you know, the discipline and the support to get to the overarching, which is that we want healthy, productive kids. We need both the today and the tomorrow to get to both the long-term vision of a sustainable contributing organization. And so if we start with that long-term vision, it allows us to remind us why are we living in these two dualities? I think that's one piece. You know, a second piece that we talk about is the importance of putting in guardrails which are the people or the structures or the metrics or the, the sort of structural pieces that like the guardrails on a, on a road prevent you from going too far in either direction. Um, we feature a social enterprise digital divide data in the book that I had been um, uh, watching, researching, engaging with since they started in 1999. And they mm. were committed to both of a social mission, which for them was to stop the cycle of poverty in Southeastern Asia, starting in Cambodia. They've now spread to Africa and to the United States, but to, to bring in the most disadvantaged people and help them to get back into the workforce so that they stop the cycle of poverty, not just for themselves, but for years to come. But they committed to doing this with a business and through a business that had financial and operational outcomes. And so they were constantly trying to navigate between making sure that they were addressing their social mission, which is what they were set up for without going out of business without, you know, well, and they had put some really clear guardrails and they, and, and at first they went too far in either direction as social enterprises tend to do at first, it was all mission and they were about to go bankrupt. And then they went, you know, straight for all business, but they lost sight of their mission. So they put into effect guardrails the people on their board and in their management that were going to keep an eye on either of these two missions and metrics and ways that they, you know, accountability so that they didn't go too far. And so I think that those guardrails become really important in organizations as well. It seems like you need everyone aware uh, of that. You talk about in the book of inviting people to, to both end thinking. And I'm, I'm curious, I have young kids myself and occasionally we, we uh, have some episodes dedicated to parenting and things like that. And I was curious to, to ask, like, you have twins, 16 and a 10 year old, you know, when are they completely fluent in, in both end thinking? Like, when is the time to invite people to this uh, approach? Yeah. You know, I'll tell you when my when my twins were three and were in daycare uh, their daycare teacher said to me, like, was totally amazed because our kids were in the middle of a conflict and one of them looked at the other and said, is there a both and here? <laughs> and so I loved that. I will say that there are many, many times where, 
you know, siblings, you know, are, are in conflict, who gets the front seat of the car, who gets the yellow lollipop or whatever it might be. And I'm often saying, is there a both and here? And now increasingly, I get a bit of an eye roll or, you know, sometimes increasingly they'll say to me, hey, mom, what's the both and, <laughs> and you know, like, but, um, you know, I think that uh, I do think that this is something that we could introduce that language early um, and people will get it at the level that they get it. I think that's true in organizations, too, which is that, you know, it's something that we have to continually remind ourselves, remind each other. And that the that what we've seen for leaders to do that is that is that they they do so both by continually bring what's the both and is there a both and right so I run a women's leadership initiative at University of Delaware and my colleagues know that as soon as we say are we servicing the students or the you know the executives or the fact like they'll know they'll you know okay Wendy what's the both and here where's the both and but um, what we've also seen with leaders is being able to communicate these ideas in ways that people can understand them at different levels. And that often means communicating in metaphors, communicating in stories. So we interviewed Terry Kelly, who was the CEO of W.L. Gore and Associates, the, the company that makes Gore-Tec. And they were navigating this tension of being a company founded on the power of small teams where decision-making was pushed down into small groups to allow for a lot of autonomy, which was a great strategy when they were about 200 people. But when they moved to, you know, thousands of people and they were all running around in small teams, Terry Kelly said, well, we need an enterprise-wide strategy. Well, people felt so threatened that this enterprise-wide global integrated strategy was going to diminish this autonomy that they had come to really love as a unique feature of their culture and company. So she was constantly reminding them that living in both the global integration and the local autonomy was like breathing in and breathing out. You have to do both to live. And so she would keep reminding them, yes, we're breathing in and we're breathing out. We're breathing in and we're breathing out. Now people might have understood that at different levels of getting it, but over time, that kind of language had to continually remind people that she wasn't coming in to swoop in and take away what was so precious and valuable about their culture, but to expand and add to it. Mm, I love it. As our time has flown by, I, I've got um, maybe one more random question question for you. And it's, it's around the overcorrection, yeah. which we talked about. I, I think of being and doing and as you mentioned early in the conversation maybe maybe medical school or something like that you can often see people especially maybe it's a stereotype of the west of this doing mindset doing doing and then you hit a certain point and there's burnout and there's a bit of you know issues that arise and you you find some sort of way to for being and doing to exist Richard Rohr, who I mentioned, has this book, The Wisdom Pattern of Order, Disorder, and then Reorder is holding when you're able to hold both of those. And he talks about that maybe that initially there's some sort of place for order. And I just wonder, like, you know, is there a time for an awareness of an overcorrection of maybe I am living more in the in the doing because I'm in 
college and I'm going to medical school or, or whatever it may be. And a recognition that being is there and it's important, but, but right now is a, is a season of overcorrection. If that makes any, any sense. Yeah. Josh, gosh, if you have some advice on this one, I'll take Because <laughs> <laughs> I could use some advice on the being doing uh, dimension. Um, gosh, you know, I, I think that's right. Um, again, I think that it's a question of how long do you live in that space? And when is it that you're in that space for too long? You know, and so how long that you live in the space that you've you've gone too far? And um, how do you know? And that I think that's the tricky question. And maybe it's when you're asking the question that you know that's a trigger for maybe I need to to tweak so that I'm not going so far to the doing that I've lost the being, you know. And and maybe that is in fact the the flag that comes up that triggers the question of how do I navigate that? Because um, I wish I knew the right balance there. Uh, I am constantly falling to one side or another. And, you know, I think therein is is maybe where we've been putting some guardrails in our lives too, right? People who have added meditation into their day because so much of their day is frenetic doing that they need some space for being or adding in a, you know, a day off. Of, I, increasingly, we do in my family, we have a day off of electronics. I know people are thinking a lot nice. about that so that there's some more being or maybe this is why increasingly medical doctors are prescribing that we go out in nature because we have become such overdoers that we uh, are have a paucity of being in uh, sort of that more transcendent space. So, gosh, there's I, I, I think we could do a whole pie. I'm sure that if I listen to other people on your podcast, maybe they have something yeah. to be in this space. <laughs> yeah, well, good stuff. I, I really appreciate it, Wendy. It's been a lot of fun connecting. And again, I, I really enjoyed the book. And we found our way to a, a final wrap-up question, and we asked most guests, time permitted, how you define or think about wisdom in daily life. So really whatever comes to mind, whichever way you want to take that. But any any thoughts to wrap it up? Yeah, I love that. I, I think wisdom is an ongoing pursuit of deeper insight. It's it's a I, I think of wisdom as not a state of arrival, but an ongoing practice of mm. exploration. Well, thank you so much. And again, the book is both and thinking. Where would you point listeners as a, as the place to go to to learn more about you and your work in the world? We do. We have a website up uh, that explores these ideas, both and thinking dot net. And people can see a consolidated set of things that we've been talking about and places we've been publishing around these ideas. Well, I love it. We'll link it in the, in the show notes so it's easy to find. Wendy Smith, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, Subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice.